Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome once again to Season 4 of the Benefits Executive Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I'm very happy to have with me today as my guest, Jeff Strong, Vice President of Sales of Sterling Administrators. Welcome, Jeff, and thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. This is I'm really excited to connect with you. You and I always have great talks, so it'll be fun to kind of have others listen in, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, you and I, we talk about this all the time. We have so much in common. We're both, I guess, people call us compliance geeks, uh, yep. for lack of a better term. Uh, and we actually, as you said, we like talking about this stuff that other people just think isn't very much fun. And one thing I'm really excited about is you and I have been talking about this for years, about doing something together, doing a seminar yep. together, doing something. Uh, and not only do we have this going on, but we also are going to be doing an event together in October for the California Agents and Health Insurance Professional uh, for Orange County on October 12th. So it's like two things right in a row. How did that happen? I know. You know what? I, th- I was thinking about this. I was thinking that the universe decided that you and I needed to talk and we needed to talk so that people could hear because there are so many moving parts and things are really changing in our realm. So they need to kind of get educated. I think that's what's happened. Yes. I'm excited. I love it. I, think I know. It's, like I said, we've been talking about this forever. So I'm really glad we could actually plan this and, and get this scheduled and do this. So anyway, as I said, we're going to be presenting this one hour CE program in October. And then following your CE program, which you're doing, then you and I and my attorney, Marilyn Monahan, um, which some of our listeners I think may already know pretty well, we're going to be doing an Ask the Expert panel so that attendee members and their employer clients can basically ask us anything they want. Does that scare you at all? You know, it's funny because it it scares me a touch, but I'm more excited. And I think part of it's because I'm quite sure that we're going to get deep compliance questions that you would probably see on a Jeopardy show. But between you and me and Marilyn, I think we're going to be in a good spot and be able to kind of give them good information. So uh, I'm really excited about that, actually. I, I am too, and thank you so much for doing that. We really appreciate that, uh, of course, in the Orange County chapter, and I appreciate that personally because I think it's going to be a blast, as I said, and I'm yeah. the vice president of uh, of uh, professional development this year for them. So, again, it makes me feel very, very good to know we're going to have a great program. Well, let's let's move on with this because uh, I, we've got so many things to cover, and, and I have so many good questions for you uh, that are going to benefit our listeners today. So let's start off with this. We both said we're compliance geeks, and if, if you're a compliance geek, we you know we know that you have to understand ERISA, and that's where you and I both come from. Yep. What do you think the most important things are that employers need to have in place related to ERISA disclosure requirements, and why? Oh well, well that's a great question, and you know it's funny because you and I talk this language. You know, I, I'm quite sure if we were having a lunch and people passed by the, the, the table, they'd be like, "Oh gosh, that, I, why would they talk about that and think it's so much fun?" And we would light up. But you're exactly right. If you're going to be in the land of compliance, you got to know ERISA. And without question, stop the presses. The number one thing is the SPD, right? The summary plan description. That's kind of the workhorse. It's the 30,000-foot view of what Mr. Employer offers, the fair and equitable opportunity to participate in. And you might say, Jeff, well, why is that? Why is the SPD kind of the workhorse? Well, a couple things. And it's really interesting. I'll give you the theory and I'll also give you real world. So the theory is, hey, you need to have it so that the employee knows this is kind of the opportunity you get to participate in the benefits that the employer offers. It covers the employer because now you have a line of communication, right? Number one thing we see in life is the more of the communication there is, the, the better 
life works in general. You know, they, they'll get it when they are hired on. They'll get it if they ask for it in writing or a special circumstance. But the, the now the reality part of it, I, I will tell you, it is quite fascinating. We at Sterling have to be a part of it because you need to have a third-party entity to write those plan documents and, and SPDs. And we have seen it been utilized a lot, believe it or not, in court. So when there's labor disputes and things like that, and we've actually had a couple of employers come to us and say, you know, because of your SPT, SPD, we were able to... Uh, win the case. So it really carries a lot of weight in that that realm. You know, it's another thing that's adjacent to that too is the 5500s, you know, and that's in the second component of it that I think is really, really important. Um, uh, you, Dorothy, have probably seen a lot with your clients, you know, when you get a new BOR and you're excited, the first question probably comes to mind if they're over 100, okay, do you have, you know, 5500 filings on the benefit side, 100 or more? And that's when I'm sure your hands sweat and you get a little bit concerned, right? No, I don't get I don't get concerned because I'm used to it. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I've been doing it my entire life. I, literally, my entire life. I started in this business in the third party administration business, which you know, when I was 23 years old, 23, yep. Uh, yep. just a baby, and I've uh, been doing this ever since. So yeah, plan documents, summary plan descriptions, all those things are so important. Wrap docs if they're fully insured, of course. You yep. mentioned 5500s. Yep. Um, then, of course, you know, the- just going back to what you just even said, at 23, you've seen a huge change, right? Because <laughs> remember, it used to be when you had ERISA documents, it was for 100 or more, right? And it was kind of, you're supposed to have it when you filed the 5500s. If you didn't have it, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. I, I went to school at the University of Oregon, and in the state of Oregon, they had a law at one point that said you had to be happy. So do you think they kicked people out of the state if they weren't happy? No, that's not how it worked. Same thing with ERISA, right? Then ACA comes along and voided it, turned into a whole different animal. So it must be quite fun for you to see the kind of compare and contrast between the two worlds, I would imagine. Yeah, it really it really has been. Well, sometimes it hasn't been all that fun, uh, <laughs> but especially when they dump new new laws and new regulations. Um, you know, usually on Friday afternoons between 2 and 5 p.m. is when they dump the regulations. Oh, yeah. and Usually on a holiday weekend, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's very much so. It is, it's kind of that back page, dirty little stuff that they don't want you to know about, but you need to make sure you're, you comply and you're in a good spot. So. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, you and I like it, and so we can make sure that there's bright lights across the board. You I, know? I don't know how many times it's happened to you, but I know many times when I had weekend plans, I had to put those plans on hold or you know, kind of work around my play and work schedule because I had to – because, again, they dump these regulations on Friday afternoon, yep. and my clients are going to want to know about them before they open their email on Monday morning because that's what they're used to, and they should be because you know I spoil them, get ready for it. If anything new comes up, you will know about right. it right away, right? Yeah, so. but it also is that warm blanket of comfort knowing that they're protected by by you and yeah. covered by you. I, I I could set my watch to it. Wednesday before Thanksgiving, okay? <laughs> you know, the wife is excited. We're going to get the turkey. We're going to line it all up. And I always tell her, get, you know what? Carve out a little time. I sure as the sun comes up, have a feeling something's going to hit. And, uh, and it usually does. Yep. It usually <laughs> does. It's been a long line of that. Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't know why yeah. they picked those two holidays, no, right? but those they're are the big ones. Nice. No, they're no, not. They're not very nice. You yeah. think they would do, you know, kind of a smaller holiday, but nope, not at all. They don't do it in front of uh, like Valentine's Day, right? Where you right. and I are like, yeah, it's nice, but we can still work. Right, exactly. Well, there are a couple of other disclosure requirements we should also mention too. Things like summaries of benefits and coverage, uh, the yep. SBCs and notices yep. and so forth, all those things. And the new notice, by the way, the newest notice, I hope everybody's been doing that since January 1st, since their renewal dates, which is the No Surprises Act notice. So make sure you have those out uh, if you haven't done those yet. Uh, make sure that happens. So yeah, that's... that's see, the beauty is somebody's listening to this podcast and their ears just perked up and said, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Right? So it's good that they listen to these things because there's so much that changes. You know, I always... I've 
liken it to a fast moving current. It's kind of like the Colorado River where the rocks are tight. There's just things that move so fast that you, you want to constantly listen and pay attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about ERISA compliance in general. Um, ERISA is overseen by the U.S. Department of Labor, of course, and the Employee Benefits Security Administration Division of the Department of Labor. Let's talk, let's talk about auditing because both you and I have had a lot of experience with auditing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to start the podcast off with the tough stuff and not the light stuff because that's, that's who we let's are. Let's just jump in the deep end here. Yeah. Sink or swim. I love it. Yeah. So, so what are your best insight, the best tools that an employer can have in the event of an ERISA audit? Oh, well, this is fascinating. So without question, the clients that we have had that have been audited, and this has probably been over the last two to three years, there's been a continual constant thing that they say. They say, you know, they call me because remember, uh, Dorothy, back in the day, it used to be 24 documents. It had to be on a folder sitting on a desk. And we would kind of go, yeah, you know, for when they come knocking, but then they changed their practices and they said, okay, you know what, we're, that's great, but we're not going to call or email. And that's another way we're going to audit as well. Finally, if there's a DOL complaint, they come out, the first thing they ask for is your ERISA documents. The one constant that we've always seen uh, over the last couple of years is they've always asked for, do you have your ERISA SPD, a summary plan description, right? They always, they start off with that all the time. Now, my clients that do say, uh-huh, I do. And it's been really interesting because I've had a wide array, right? I've had construction companies, engineering companies. I've had uh, agriculture. So you would think these are not common people. They all commonly said to me that the second thing that they noticed was they kind of lost interest a little bit. So they always would ask for one, the SPD, right? And if, they, if you have it, it seemed to calm the waters. And then two, they would always ask for, are you ready for this? Financial statements and showing that you're a functioning company. Now, Dorothy, I've discovered that I have a compliance white whale, and that white whale is trying to understand why do you need the financial statement that are a functioning company if you're calling them? So, uh, unfortunately, my whale, Moby Dick, is still out there, and I'm still looking for it. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this about me, because I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I'm actually a former auditor. I don't know if you know that. My very beginning of my career, did you know that? I did not know that. I knew you wore many hats, but I didn't know you were an auditor. I can see that though. Your attention to detail and your engagement would make sense. No, I was, I was, I was 22 years old and I needed a job. (laughs) 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 I'm just crazy. I moved from Michigan to the state of California, started off in the Bay Area and because my sister was there and I had gone there because I had a different job, got there that morning. I decided I didn't want that job because they kind of changed it up a little bit uh, from the time they offered it to me and the time I arrived and and uh, by lunchtime, I said, you know what? I don't want this job. I looked out the window in the morning and, and, saw, I, and saw an employment agency across the street. So in my lunch, I walked across the street. They sent me out immediately to an administrative company right in the area. Uh, and they, need, they had an immediate opening, and it was for a pension auditor. So I started my career wow. as a pension auditor. And uh, that means, yeah, it was for the largest pension plan in the country at that time. And uh, I worked for an independent administrator, but it was quite, it was quite interesting because you know, when you're an auditor, first of all, you're not paid anything. Um, (laughs) but, but more importantly, you learn so much because you learn you, before I could do anything, I had to learn ERISA inside and out. I had to know ERISA and then I needed to know, you know, all the steps. And the one thing I discovered through that entire process is that it doesn't matter what kind of an auditor you are. If you, um, if you have an ERISA audit, if you have a pension audit, if you have whatever kind of audit you have, they're trained exactly the same way. 
You know what? Yeah. They have their list of items and they all kind of follow the same same rules and so forth. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually quite interested in the audit function because I've actually done it before, not for the yeah. DO, not for the DOL, but I have done uh, ERISA related audits again for pension plans. So and by the way, I have some pretty big dollar amount audits that I've had over my years. But uh, oh, I'm quite sure. But that I'm was the start sure. of my career. And at the beginning, you know, it's like I never wanted to mention that I was an auditor. But then I started getting into the business that I'm in now, mm-hmm. right? Because after that, I uh, started running a TPA. And that yep. first audit job was quite important. I discovered how much oh. more. And and then and then after 12 years of running a TPA, uh, you know, who, who has to know administration and has to know compliance better than us, right? When we're in the TPA yes. business, that's what we do. Oh, very much so. I mean, that's your bread and butter. And yeah. if you don't, then you're dead in the water. Right? Absolutely. You, you bring no value, no importance to it. Right. And then, of course, I moved on to the other side of the fence, which was the broker consultant side. And I just have to say that all of that experience was just so valuable because, oh gosh, yeah. because, uh, yeah, it really, it really helped shape my career. So yeah, it's really an important tool and, and, uh, audits are, are not something that you should laugh about. They're not something that you should take lightly because, you know, you have to be ready for what they, what they, what they ask you for. And so my next question, of course, you know that I'm going to ask this, how do you prepare for an audit? And I know you and I both gone through this lots of times ourselves oh, personally. Have. So how we can have. you? It's amazing. Is. And so one of the big things, you know, and go, backing up just really quickly to one thing I do want to also let the, the people listening in, the, in this podcast, you know, for the employers, you know, you've got a couple sections that you need to be astute to, you know, you want to work with your broker, you've got the, you know, the, uh, the side that comes to the, you as the employer have to provide, you've got the stuff the carriers are going to ask for, and then you've got the TPA that you're going to utilize to provide those documents you don't get from either side, right? But also, you, you want to be astute to kind of, you know, what your COBRA procedures are, your HIPAA procedures, all those type of things. But on top of that, if you are a broker who's listening to this today, you know, you would also kind of say, you know, make sure, and I'm sure you do this, Dorothy, all the time as well, is that you always send out every year a message just reminding people, hey, guys, there's this thing called a risk, you need to be astute to it. Um, and this is a way to solve the problem. I imagine that's something that you carry that flag very highly with. Would you agree? Not even once a year. It's on a constant basis. Every time I go out to see our clients asking about something, and we're always talking about it in every webinar and every seminar. As you know, we, we do a lot of them. My company does a lot of oh, them. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a continuous thing. But, uh, yes, very, very important. It really is, isn't it? And so kind of going back to the, your next question, you know, how do you prepare for an audit? Well, some of the main things that you want to do is, and you would expect, you know, you're thinking, okay, Jeff, I've been listening to you two big brains talk about this compliance stuff. I noticed something already. Oh my goodness, that's great. Good job. One of them is that SPD we we're talking about, that workhorse. So the first thing we've done and what we'll do is we'll engage with the client. Well, do you have an SPD? Oh, no, we didn't know. It. We we heard it from people. We didn't really believe it or want it. So I'm stuck. That's it. The house is going to burn down. They're going to take my company and off I go. No, that's not necessarily the case. And one thing that you probably know, Dorothy, and I see all the time is like anything, if you're working to solve the problem, it always shines a better light, right? So we've had a lot of situations where people, even after the date that they've been audited, and we do it to express to them, look, you've got a gap here. So there's still exposure. But so far, what we've been seeing is that the entities that are auditing say, all right, you're trying to do things in the best and right way. So that's probably the most important part, I would say, that we get kind of in regards to preparing for audits. Yeah, and I agree with that as well. I've, I've worked with the uh, Department of Labor a lot, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually done some consulting and expert witness work and you know, been a, an independent fiduciary for them and all sorts of things. And one thing I can say, whether I was working with a local office in Pasadena or whether I was working with the, uh, the lawyers, uh, the office of the solicitor in, in yeah. uh, Washington, D.C., they all are interested most and in, foremost is in compliance uh, and voluntary compliance and um, the fact that, as you mentioned, as long as they're willing to do the work, 
uh, and get it done. For the most part, they're going to back off a lot of the penalties and that sort of thing. You can't guarantee that, of course, but yep. it, it, you know, it's in your best interest to, to do your best job, uh, make a good faith effort to comply. So that's very much so. Very that's much that's so. always and, and been. I love the way you put that too. I think you worded it absolutely brilliantly. Look, everybody. You know what? Here's the rules. Sometimes you don't know. You got distracted. The person that you did was supposed to do the rules. They left. Things like that. So the world understands that. But the overall arching theme is if you're trying to solve the problem, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have to pay a fine or it may not go the direction you want. But it always puts you in a better light that you're trying to resolve the challenge, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. We've already been kind of talking about this, uh, and I mentioned it that I've had some personal experience in this. But let's talk about let's talk about fiduciary liability. Yeah. As we talked about a moment ago, um, I've done a lot of fiduciary work in the past, including with the Department of Labor. Yep. First, what is a fiduciary, and second, what are the most important things that employers need to know about you know being a fiduciary of a plan? Yep. Yeah, so the, you know that's a really, really good question. It's very important. This is also gets very inside baseball, right? So some of your more technical, your engineer clients, your you know your architect clients are the ones that are really reading into it, and you'll find that they will even say the words back to you. But, you know, I'm the plan sponsor, I'm the fiduciary, so X, Y, Z. One thing that I think has really been interesting for us to see is that there's a couple of different angles on the definition of it, right? So from an insurance perspective, it's anyone who is cited as kind of managing the benefits, right? and defining it as making the administrator of the plan, right? So that's the insurance policies view. And then, my friend, I'm sure people are going to roll their eyes. I'm sure Jeff's going to bring up ERISA because it's a compliance podcast. And yeah, and the, from the, the ERISA definition, it's a person or an entity with a discretionary authority to control and manage the operation and administration of the benefits, right? So now you and I, are we're just engaged. We understand that. We ate that up like a nice hamburger. But for our friends on this that are listening to this podcast to go, okay, that's nice. What does that say? Basically, it just says you're the one that is owning and administrating the plan and you're kind of the captain of the ship. And what is the number one thing in a, as the captain of the ship the employer should do? They should remember that they want to take care of the people on the ship, right? You want to administer the plan to the best interest of the employees. Now, you, Dorothy, and myself have come across because we deal with a lot of different entities those employers that go the opposite direction, right? They're the ones where you kind of cringe a little bit and you go, oh, I don't, do you really want to do that? Because it's not really putting the employees in the best spot. Yeah, 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 I want to do that. Oh, okay. So that's kind of really the main driver of kind of what they're looking for. Right, absolutely. Well, let's talk about one extension from fiduciaries. Uh, let's talk about the prudent man rule. That's a big part of ERISA. What does, what does this generally mean to the employer plan sponsor? Yeah, so basically what it means is you need to have uh, decisions to be made from a skillful and pertinent expert, right? So you kind of got to know what you're doing. So I'm going to get a little geeky here. This is where everyone cringes. And for those really – I won't cringe. People, I won't cringe. No, I know. Uh, ERISA <laughs> section 404A1B, right? So for those of you that are really into this kind of stuff, you can re rewind that and write it down and kind of dig into it a little bit more. So basically it's just kind of saying, hey, as the administrator, you've got to have the prudent man, which says you need to kind of know what you're doing. And so be aware of it, astute to it, and also get the skilled people that'll help you solve it, kind of like Dorothy here if you were doing a self-insured plan. Right. So basically what it says is that all decisions must be made 
keeping the best interest of the plan yep. participants in mind at all costs. Basically, yep. in a nutshell, that's what it says. So you have to really drive it down to, are you protecting the plan participants? And that's more than just the, the employees. That is all your dependents that are covered as well. So yes. if, if you're looking out and making those decisions and they're going to benefit those uh, plan participants and not necessarily the company in all cases, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to be okay as far as the uh, the law there and what they say and what the prudent man rule is all about, right? Yep, you're exactly right. And you couldn't have put that in in any better way in layman's terms. So that's very well expressed. Okay, good. Okay, good. I, I did a good job. Yay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my problem, like yours, is that I tend to get too geeky sometimes. So yep. I have to break it down to terms that people will understand. So when, yep. when you say that, that makes me feel good because what I meant by saying that was that, yay, I didn't make it too technical. <laughs> no, not at all. No, you did a wonderful job. You were, you were able to kind of filter through uh, the chaos of that. So I will later give you an amazing review on Yelp. Okay. Well, please do that. <laughs> please do that. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, one of the least favorite things each year for employer groups, and that's, which I know you know a lot about, preparing the 5,500. Uh, and doing that filing, you know, actually, you know, I'm really smart because I passed this responsibility on to my business partner years ago. Um, I, I, yes, I had to do are. all of the initial 5,500 filings for my clients, but I said, you know what, Anthony, here you go. Um, because he's more, he's better with those forms. And I just, he, I'm a finance, finance major as well as a marketing major way back in the college days. But I got to tell you, my least favorite thing to look at is anything that looks remotely like a tax form. Okay. Uh, and even though this is an informational filing, it still looks kind of like a tax form. <laughs> yep. Oh, you're exactly right. So it's run, It's rather interesting. In the in our little realm of the world, the 5500s are considered a form of punishment, right? And right. So you say, well, Jeff, why is that? Because the regulatory body wants, they want a triangle. They don't want a square. They don't want a rhombus. They don't want a circle. It's got to be the triangle. So you constantly find there's a lot more communication. There's a lot more you got to put together. Now, for some of the people listening to this podcast, they might say, oh, 5500s. Yeah, I've got it on the 401k site. And you do. And that's wonderful. And off you go. On our side, right, it's for if you have 100 or more uh, individuals participating on a product as of the effective date. So, Dorothy, I would imagine your partner in crime there, he gets a lot of times phone calls from from clients that go, oh, my gosh, we just became 110 people and we need to do 5500s. Okay, well, let's talk about it. You know, out of your medical, dental, vision, and life, you know, how many do you have? Oh, we have 75 on dental. That's the most we have on any of the products. Okay, well, then you don't necessarily need it. Now, interesting fact, right? This is a kind of little fun fact. The usually when a client goes over a hundred or more, remember you notice that I said as of a on a product as of the effective date, the number one product that snipers people the most is the life insurance. Because what do employers do? I'm going to buy life insurance for all my employees in case something bad happens. I'm being altruistic. So that's the number one thing. That's the ghost in the closet. That's when you know brokers and, and entities get a new client. The number one thing that they the hands get sweaty with is. Oh, you're 150? Awesome. Did you file any 5500s? One of my favorite stories is I had a, a broker who talked about he, he had a client, just took him over. They were lovely. He was so excited. Second day they go in and the, the lovely uh, uh, administrative assistant said, you know, I've been getting these Schedule A forms for years and I put them in this drawer over here and life is wonderful. And you just, he goes, I could just feel my face melt. Turns out they hadn't filed their 5500s for about 10 years. And Dorothy, if you run the numbers, that's a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, so it penalties. So it's not yeah. something you want to have. A lot of penalties. 
Oh, very much so. And we had one entity one time that if they had not solved the problem, it would have cost them, we calculated it out, $15 million. But, you know, this is kind of going back to what we talked about before, and hopefully some of the people that we get up, that get done with this podcast will realize that, again, this is another point where if you were lurk to solve the problem and proactively work on it, you know, they have the delinquent filer program, which caps some of those penalties, right? So... Uh, hopefully for someone who's listening to this right now, their hands aren't sweating and they're crying because they have a client that has seven years of past filings and they think we're, we're, we're sunk. No, you're not necessarily. You want to look to start working on and solving the problems. But it's definitely something that you have to fit that box. And if you don't, it gets rough. Another thing I think it's important for us to talk about too is there's one thing that I guarantee you as sure as the sun comes up. One, I'm loud, right? Two, you and I love compliance. And three, if you have a client that goes over 100 and they need to file 5,500s, then you file. And then the following year, things go a little bit rough. They chop themselves in half and they, they don't have over 100 and you do not file. And then, oh, things went great and you file again. So if you go up, down, up, I guarantee you will be audited. It is 100% of what we see. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, that's it's, it's sure as the sun comes up, it's been ever since I got into the lovely game. So we always tell people, you know, if you have a client that has 100 or more, but they get dropped, you actually can take the 5,500 form. There's a box you check that says, hey, we're sub, sub 100 this year. Send that, off you go. So can you imagine that? A little box can make all the difference, all the difference. not having to get the audit. Isn't yep. that crazy? Just a little box. I know, but people don't even realize that they can do that. And that's where yeah. that's where people like you and I come in, I guess. Uh, oh, very much so. That's yeah. where we come in and we can kind of look to help solve the problem. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned the delinquent filer program because I was going to be adding that question in just a moment. I was going to ask you about that. So can you explain a little bit more about how the delinquent filing program works sure. and how they can fill in those gaps of missing forms? Very much. So what happens is, is the, the, the regulatory body realizes, you know, not everyone's perfect and no one's, you know, not everyone's a bad guy trying to escape the system. Sometimes things just get out of hand. You know, we had referenced earlier that maybe the individual that took care of the 5500s, they moved on and now they work at McDonald's or they went to the Caribbean. And so there's this whole and the compliance thing just gets missed. If you are proactively looking to solve the problem, then what you can do is what's called the delinquent filer program that says, hey, we will cap the penalty at $4,000 per product and off you go. So you say, oh, Jeff, that seems like it could be a lot. Well, it could, but remember, we referenced that client earlier that $15 million, right? So at the end of the day, they ended up having to pay about $25,000 and got things cleaned up. Life is good. Off they go. Have a nice day. So you see that there is a big you know, a big variance there if you look to be uh, proactive about it. Right, for sure. Well, I know one of your favorite topics to talk about, uh, of course, is auditing uh, 5,500 filings. Can you share with us some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's one of those things that really it, it feels a little bit pun- and kind of painful and punishing, right? Because what will happen is, is individuals will not get the right head counts or sometimes what happens when the carriers provide the Schedule A's, they may say subs versus employees. So then the numbers are a little bit off and then people aren't checking the right boxes. Also, another thing to keep in mind is when you deal with it, it and this sounds very, again, inside baseball, but 5500s, a lot of the driver is the contract number, right? So you could use one form that you might be able to do your, your dental and your vision if it's under the same contract number, and you can kind of put it all one spot and off you go. But if you've got a different product in one carrier, another product in another carrier, you're going to have different contract numbers, so then you're going to have to file different forms. And then you probably should all wrap it up in ERISA. And this is the start, this kind of section where you probably pause this podcast and your head is steaming a little bit. Um, <laughs> For sure. That's partly why you have people like Dorothy and me. And so what you do is you press play again and you just call Dorothy or myself and we help you out. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's let's shift a little bit to another one of your one of your favorite topics, right? Uh, let's talk about Cobra and family members and and how how does this all work? Can you walk us through this? Yeah, I definitely will. So Cobra is a fascinating animal in itself, right? Because there was one idea where people thought, well, Cobra is just going to go away, you know, and it has stayed around. And I think you and I will probably talk about that later because that's something we have that comes up a lot. But I thought it was really interesting to kind of talk about one of the main questions we see that has bubbled up over the years that I want you people to know about is when somebody is terminated and they're on a family plan, we often get asked, well, can they leave, you know, some of the members on there? So I'll give you an example. You know, John and his family, um, he's been terminated. He's, he's moving on to a new other opportunity somewhere else or something like that. Remember, outside of gross negligence, right? So if you've got individuals terminated because they tried to burn the whole building down, uh, they can't have Cobra and, and they shouldn't be doing that. But let's you know use the example that John, he's got a daughter and he wants to keep the daughter on the Cobra. Can he do that? Yes, he can. And so what you want to think about when the family plan is each individual has that ability to participate and maintain that Cobra opportunity. So that's something that's really important. Now let's go the other way. So I've got John and he is on a single plan. He is terminated. He really likes this Cobra and he's got a daughter. He wants to put him on it because he thinks he's great fun, right? Uh, unfortunately, they cannot do that because you have to have during a kind of open enrollment time period to be able to add or kind of improve upon that. And so I think that these are kind of little blocking and tackling things of Cobra that if you never really stop to think about, but a lot of people on this, uh, that listen to this podcast have probably had to deal with at the time. So. Right. That would be good for us to know. Yes, absolutely. Well, some people think that because now that we have exchanges around, really, it's easy to enroll in them such as Covered California here in California, uh, that, that there's no more need to offer COBRA. Can you tell us why there is still a need for COBRA compliance? Yeah, you bet. It was really interesting because when all the exchanges started coming out and their subsidies and all these other variables, I would, I would go out and talk to the different markets and they all say, oh, you're a COBRA, that thing's got days, days, just days till it's gone. Well, a couple of things went along, kind of came about. One was we realized that, that a lot of the political side of the, of the fence was people didn't want to be see or Politicians didn't want to be seen as taking something away, right? Taking away a kind of a safety aspect. But more importantly, it, what really has kept COBRA going is people's comfort with their network and the doctor that they have. So even though they say, you know what, I could go to the exchange, I probably could do some research and kind of figure out how to do it. Or I can just say, I'm going to elect COBRA, I'm going to pay a little bit extra and just kind of keep going down that route. Um, got to remember, at that time period, it's kind of chaotic for individuals. So the path of least resistance and the most fluid way to continue what they currently have is the most important. Finally, you and I touch this stuff all day long, so we know what's going on. For them, it's a foreign animal. Mm -hmm. So it just seems kind of more fluid to stay with the cobra. Yeah. That's why we see them continue to go that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and think of it too, like let's say someone terminates or a family member uh, is just about to have a baby uh, or just you know needs a big surgery, that sort of thing. They terminate their employment. Um, you know, they may not feel comfortable at all going with, oh, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, in my last seven weeks of my pregnancy or, yep. you know, I'm two weeks before my surgery and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, give up everything I've already got in place. I've already got the pre-authorizations done. I've already got yep. this handled. I know my doctor. I know my surgeon. I know my hospital. All that's, you know, taken care of. And if I, uh, what, what is the risk if I, if I stop this plan and go elsewhere? Of course, you yep. know, uh, 
you know, obviously various various laws took away the pre-existing conditions, restrictions, and things like that. But still, it's very it's very very scary for individuals out there and family members when my plan's going to go away because someone in my family, uh, you know, stopped working there and moved to another company. It's, you couldn't put that any better. Yes, I mean, remember these are people that again chaotic situations. They don't know it. You know, they barely know what an HMO and a PPO is, and, and they've got this avenue to continue. You know, uh, another way to really illustrate this, uh, Dorothy, is ARPA, right? So with ARPA, you had these rules that were going on and all this other stuff. But before that, there was the CARES Act that said, hey, everybody, uh, COVID is a uh, is defined as a disaster. So everything's going to stop. You don't have to do anything until we, we say things are back and good to go, which is going to be coming next year. So we're going to definitely have to talk about that because that's going to keep people off. Um, very awake. But you know what was really interesting, Dorothy, is even though they did have the opportunity to not necessarily continue with the normal flow and function of Cobra, that's what the market did, right? People knew enough to know that, all right, I want to keep my my doctors. I've, I'm going to have a pregnancy. I want to keep things going. Here's my payment. Here's my, my paperwork. And off you go. And that kind of follows in the same vein of what we're talking about. And that's why I, Cobra will be around for a while. And even though you do have the exchanges and others, um, it's continued to go the way it is. Well, well, why don't you, you brought it up, so I'm just going to ask you about it. Why don't you just talk about the ARPA situation? Yeah. So basically, ARPA situation was a fascinating situation where the government said, hey, we're going to pick up the tab on COBRA across the board for everybody, but we're going to do something that had not been done before. So during the Obama administration, they said the same kind of thing. Hey, we're going to pick up the tab for about 65% of it. This time, they're picking up 100% of it. But what they did this round at ARPA they said, we're going to retro back. So we're going to have a look back period. All those people that you had let go, they can also jump in it as well. And it caused a huge amount of stress and concern. Interestingly enough, on my side, in the TPA kind of Cobra vendor side, it put a big amount of pressure on us because we didn't know exactly what was the market doing, how are they managing it, the cost, the controls of it, all of it. That's also why I would imagine as people are looking throughout the market, you'll notice that prices had gone up in January, right? And pretty much across the board within the, the vendor space of, you know, Cobra, HSA, FSA, HR, things like that. And a lot of it was driven partly by the, the ARPA costs, having to absorb those costs and then second, secondarily uh, inflation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Cobra, I, I don't know if you know this about me either, but you you may or may not. Um, I was actually working in the TPA business when Cobra was first signed into law way back in – you, you probably were still in diapers. You're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> but I, re, I remember just as being a person – keep in mind, I was running a third-party administrator, right? Yeah. So who has to know Cobra? The administrator. Oh, yeah. The administrator. Ooh. And we couldn't go to somewhere and farm that out, right? We were an administrator. Nope. So it was my job. And by, the funny thing is I had a parent company that was huge. You know, I was running this small little TPA. But they didn't have to worry about it for two and a half more years because they had just renewed their union contracts and so forth, right? So I and I had to, by myself, in this little tiny little TPA in Orange County, had to figure out COBRA all by myself. And that's, you know what, that is the turning point in my compliance career because I figured out something that I didn't know about myself. And that was that I was pretty good at reading these very technical, first, all you had were just law text, right? Yeah. And then you finally got regulations. So I, I was actually very good at figuring out what the law said and then and then regu- reading the regulations and figuring out how do I make this a simple administrative process. I guess yep. you have to do that, right? When you're and in the you te- when you're in the administration business, right? You have to figure out how to make it work in an administrative process. Well, and you said something really important. You know, you said, look, I had to read legal texts and I don't know if anyone on this who listened to this has ever had to do that, but that in itself can heretofore, you know, it mm-hmm. cause a lot of heartburn. But then you have to be able to translate it into a functional system. And then on top of that, 
translate it to the layman so that they understand what the rules of the road are. Right. You know, um, I would imagine because you've had an incredibly successful career. Uh, I've been very blessed that one of the, I pay attention to people that have done very well farther down the road. And one of the main things I've always been told is know, uh, know the tax laws and know the rules, kind of what's going on with that, right? So being astute to kind of what are the rules of the road, and that's probably why you and I usually during holidays are, are having to work because the rules are changing, um, <laughs> is a very important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I like I said, when I was going through that time period, I had to figure it out. And then, uh, interestingly enough, a couple of years later when my parent company had to figure it out, all they did was go to me and say, do it for us. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, you're the one with all the staff and all the people and all the resources and all this and that. I had to figure it out on my own. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. But Isn't that how it always is? Yeah. Baton. Thank you. I know. But for me, it was, like I said, it was a turning point in my career because I figured out and everybody says it's a talent. I call it a curse. But I, but I had that ability to do that, and um, you know somebody had to, and and you're like that too. You can read these things and figure it out, and and know what it what it means. So I think it's 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 helpful to know that you're working with people that, you know, we have experience with these sort of things. We know when the writing is difficult, when the language is like what, um, we know how to kind of make it work um, and deal with all the changes because they're constantly changing. And I'm sorry, oh, but, I, I know I got off on a tangent there, but since we were talking about it, I just wanted to bring that up because it's this, again, part of my history. It's where I started and realized that, you know what, I'm pretty good at this compliance thing. So if it hadn't been for Cobra, I don't know if that would have ever happened. So Well, it's been interesting because if you look at your your career, it was thrown in the deep end. Either you're going <laughs> to figure this out, oh, yeah. you're going to be great at it, or you're going to drown and go work it's somewhere else. That's exactly else. So, what happened. You know what? And I'm not going to let anything beat me. So um, yes. yeah, I had to figure it that's, out on my own. Oh, that's a given. I, I was in my young, I was in my early 20s when all this was going on. And I got to tell you, it was not easy, but I figured it out. So, it, it, you know, it can make or break you. And I, I, I survived. So it's all good. But well, let's continue. I want to talk one more thing about Cobra before we move on to sure. another subject. Uh, tell us about Cobra and the military. So this has been really interesting. So I kind of got deep into this and kind of dug into it. So how it works, and I don't think a lot of people know, but normally individual is an employee and he goes off and he's in the military, he's being called up and on, and off you go. What's going to happen is if it's 30 days or more, right, he's going to be active and he's going to take care and support America, uh, he will be covered by his military health insurance. But in addition to that, there's two laws. There's COBRA. And then there's U-S-E-R-R-A. And basically what it says, hey, if it's oh, if it's 30 days or less, then everything just kind of runs as normal. But if it goes greater than that, and for some reason they the military health care isn't going to line up, and that would have to be very, very specific, which I'm quite sure everybody on this call really doesn't care about. So we're going to stay higher level. Uh, they would have the ability to engage in COBRA or the Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. So basically we've created laws saying that they'll have extra time to make sure that they're covered for health insurance, which I think is wonderful. Because what it's basically saying is, hey, if you're going to put your uh, your life in the line and go support the country, we are going to do everything. And it's threefold, right? You've got the, the military health insurance, and you've got COBRA, and then you have the the, the USSE, uh, USERRA. So we've got three levels to protect our, our soldiers. Um, to protect the country, which I think is just really fun, really wonderful, and really good for everybody to know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to a different topic. There have been a lot of changes lately uh, related to ICRAs. Uh, what are these, yes. and where is all this going, and how does this relate to subsidies and all that sort of thing? Why don't so you kinda, fill everybody yeah. in? Yeah, let's kind of talk about the, the latter part of it. So it has been interesting. Part of my job is to travel all over the country and, and talk to different people and kind of engage different levels. Uh, right now, ICRA is an, in a very interesting spot in that it appears to be a little bit kind of that gold rush feel. So what do you, what do you mean by that, Jeff? 
Well, when you go to different conferences and others, you probably notice, I'm quite sure you, Dorothy, and, and others I have, uh, have individuals that say, you know what, I'm starting up an ICRA company. I'm just going to do ICRAs only, and this is how we're going to do it, blah, 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 right? I now know there's actually a GA that just focused in on ICRAs as well. We are, we are not totally sure if this is going to kind of come together or not. Why? Because, well, ICRA is a very powerful tool. Um, there's also a little bit of restrictions and kind of how it's working. You do have the subsidies are coming into play, which a lot of people feel are going to be um, just kind of edged in stone, right? And you and I have seen this, right? Remember the Cadillac tax? Oh, yeah. All thought was going to end the world and they kept kicking out the can and eventually it's kind of disappeared a little bit. Uh, the same kind of thing with ICRA is we're, we're trying to figure out how does it going to fit, right? As of right now, from a, I'll tell you a theory and then I'll tell you a function. So the theory is, uh, hey, ICRA is great for your small little guys, your, your sub-10 groups that they want to um, try to help people and they want to find a different avenue, but they don't necessarily want to do group. Okay, fine. Then you have the others that want to put it alongside the, the group plan and they can do it. Think of, uh, I always tell everyone to think of like a top of a pyramid. You either slide down the left side, which is group, or you slide down the right, which is ICRA, but there's certain requirements you've got to have. You know, if you're going to have it alongside a group plan, you've got to have classifications. One thing that we are seeing that is changing though, and we really see it getting legs, is when you have scenarios of out-of-state employees, right? You've got a big company and they've got a bunch of different out-of-state employees and they want to kind of offer them the ICRA aspects to say, versus the group plan because it tends to provide different uh, different levels for different people. Another thing that I think is important for you and the listeners to know too is I've been listening to a lot of think tanks and they are in a big belief that ICRA is going to be a game changer and it's going to kind of change the course or angle of where this is all going. Um, we're not quite sure. You know, I'd be curious on your side, how are you seeing it affected or having any spot in space or um, position in kind of the self-funded realm? You know what? Um, I haven't seen any self-funded plans yet that have actually wanted to do this. They kind of look at it. And yeah, isn't that – it is. And I was talking to, with Marilyn Monaghan about this not too long ago. That's – I just – personally, I haven't seen the excitement about it yet that I thought they would. Um, I see it more in other areas, but um, not not as much in the self-funded space. That, that not, not anywhere near like I thought it would be. So Yeah. So. Well, it's just interesting to see, right? Because, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about as we kind of continue down the road, you had mentioned and did a really good job of in the land of compliance, things are always changing. It's the fast moving river, right? So we learn to see how it works. And one thing that I've learned, and yeah. I'm quite sure you have as well, it all starts out big and fuzzy. And then over time, it gets refined and refined right. and refined. And then we fi it finds a spot. I would say ICRA is kind of at that spot right now where it's still kind of fuzzy mm -hmm. and we are seeing some of those ICRA shops closing and some of them are laying off and others are trying to find different avenues. So we don't quite know where it's going to fit. You know, same thing with the QSC HRA. It's the grandpa of the ICRA. It's got less, less power pop to it. Um, but it found a spot, right? It found a spot for your three life group. It's your friend who owns a photography company that wants to help out some people. Okay. Well, that's where kind of where it fit. We don't quite know how far. And, and I think that's why the popularity isn't hasn't been that strong in some in some spaces yet because they just there's too there are too many unanswered questions and people just I yeah. think they're kind of scared of it. They don't know until everything's like hammered out. They don't really want to jump in sometimes. Oh, I would agree. I would agree. And you couldn't put that any better, right? Because one thing when you talk to the to the community, right? And this is the health insurance brokers, health insurance carriers, clients, HR, all of them. If you want them to stop, kind of like you remember those 1980s movies where the record would stop and go, you know, 
uh, bring up the word ICRA uh, <laughs> or bring up the word 5500. So you do that, it's and everyone's kind of, oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to, I want to, because time's limited here and we've been sure. talking quite a bit here, I want to move on to another topic that I think is really important today. Uh, one of the most emotional, controversial, and thought provoking topics, let's say, uh, from this past summer was the Dobbs versus Jackson Women Health, uh, SCOTUS case, of course, which overturned Roe versus Wade and took away the federal constitutional right to have an abortion. Yep. So, so now we have this myriad of laws on the state level. Um, you know, some are for, some are against abortions and everybody's all over the place. How does oh, this, yeah. how does this affect the employer's health plan? Yeah, so it really makes it a lot trickier, doesn't it? Because yeah, yeah. what it used to be, and you know, the, what we also want to point to, this is where us, where we were, our our little compliance hatch here, Eddie. Mm-hmm. The IRS regulation seventy three dash two hundred one. Yes, basically says, hey, you know what? This is all going to be blanketed, and you can do it. You're fine. Um, this is a sentence that I think we're going to have to kind of really drill drill on next is the definition of it's legal in that state, right? Because the, the whole function it's a, it's a medical change of the body, and so that is covered under kind of this umbrella. Why it's gotten real kind of um, muddy is it used to be legal. Well, it was federally legal across everywhere. So there you go. Well, now that it's been drilled down to the states, you've got some that say yes and others say no. You think about Kansas and Missouri, that type of thing. So it puts a lot of pressure on employers and on health plans. Very much so. Yeah, and, and the employers are all, what do I do? Where do I go now? What do I do? Oh, God. <laughs> it's been crazy. And by the way, uh, just as kind of a side note on this, thank you, Jeff, for helping me. I was writing an article uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I asked uh, Jeff for some help on that and, and provide me some comments and so forth. We had a little chat about uh, some of these topics, and he did uh, chime in on this and, and give me some assistance in that article. So thank you very much for that. And by the way, it was just released all my articles are written for my clients first and they go out to them and they did in my uh, third quarter newsletter and then immediately following that I had a couple of magazines that are have already grabbed it and are going to be printing it so more oh, more, to, more to come on that very quickly yeah. but uh, by the yeah. time this podcast hits uh, they'll probably be out or on the way on the way to anyway so thank you for helping yeah. me with that yeah 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 so let's talk about this because you mentioned it let's talk about crossing state lines to receive an abortion uh, yep. and we can get more you know more into this and, and you and I aren't lawyers and I think that's what makes right. this discussion a little bit easier because I had this conversation with Marilyn Monahan last week and of course as a lawyer she's going to take things a little bit more um, you know, keep things closer to your vest because they have to protect themselves and so forth from liability and they have to wait for certain things to come out. But you and I, we don't have to worry about that because we're not lawyers. Nope. <laughs> so, right. I don't even play one on TV. I know. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's make it more interesting. You mentioned Texas, um, and another state yeah. as well. So let's, let's, let's use Texas as an example, which of course has outlawed abortions and is threatening to do all kinds of not so nice things like limiting companies from doing business in their states based on whether they can, you know, whether they cover abortion, whether they support it or whether they're allowing people to uh, cross state lines for abortions. Um, and of course, there could be penalties, both criminal and civil penalties that are possible. So, I, you know, let's talk about some of these things. And I've got a lot of different parts to this. Well, let's start with the first one that I hear a lot of people asking. You know, you and I will just talk about our own personal opinions on this because we're not lawyers. And yeah. let me state that again. We are not providing legal advice of any type here. Right. So, Kenan, is it possible that an Uber driver, a Lyft driver, or a taxi driver, could they be liable if they were to drive? someone across state lines to get an abortion what do you think so yeah let's talk about it so it kind of it's really frustrating it's really frustrating remember when we talked about you know ACA and ERISA and it's kind of big and fuzzy and needs to be refined down that's I mean, we are a big fuzzy plus so going back to what we had mentioned that saying it had to be legal in that state 
Well, it goes down to the definition of legal legal state. All right. Well, does that mean that if the company is cited silenced in Texas, then it's not legal? Does it mean that if the Uber driver drives them to Kansas where it is legal, then it's okay because it's a legal state? Or is it that the, the, the uh, Uber driver takes them to Kansas and they buy the drug there and then it's legal or they go to another state and then the drug kicks in? That's, that's legal. So there is concern that there is exposure for that Uber driver and the others because they would be defined under aiding and abetting, okay, right? right? Mm-hmm. Saying, hey, I knew that these laws were allowed and I don't, I'm not going to pay attention to that. So yes, that is a concern at this at this point. Yeah, and I think everybody's concerned about that. And people like you and I, we also need to be concerned as well because what if we talk to an employer in general about yep. this and they start asking us questions and, and we inadvertently or maybe we do it on purpose, I don't know, um, but we start talking about ways that maybe their employees could uh, get an abortion in another state or their dependents. I mean, yes. potentially that there is, is liability for us, potentially. Big, giant spotlight. So uh, basically, short of having a hold harmless agreement or some kind of legal document providing some kind of shield of protection, uh, you yes, you and I would have big exposure there because you're looking to influence a, a basically an illegal act which would be driving towards aiding the betting again. Right. And so that, that's no bueno. It's not good, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then another question that I hear people asking all the time, what about the doctor or the telehealth company? Yep. Could they be liable for performing, you know, surgical or yep. pharmaceutical abortions? Yeah. And it's crazy because if you look at it, very much they could because, but it all drills back to they've really got to figure out how they're going to define the definition of a legal state, right? So let's say farther down the road, they say, okay, it's all where the company's based in. Okay, great. Well, if uh, I'm in Kansas, uh, you know, I'm sightest in Kansas, but I'm going to travel, then okay, I'm fine. I don't need to worry about it. Um, but as of right now, no, there's exposure on across all the different boards. Yeah, of course. And everybody's nervous about it. And, and all the employers that I know are asking me questions about it. And everything's just like, stay tuned. We'll let you yeah. know. <laughs> because we yeah. don't we don't know anything specifically yet. It's going to be interesting to see where all this plays out. Um, yeah. but, you know, so what can we tell people about when they ask, where does all this stand right now? So we have to go back to our days of ACA. So you and I would talk about ACA and we would say, well, this is kind of where it's at as of right now. And you'd say, I need to put a little asterisk because in 20 minutes it could change. Right. I had a situation where I told a client something, got on a plane. By the time I landed, it changed. And I had to say, see, this is what I'm talking about. So right now what you have to do is you have to tell them until they get that clarity to find what the definition of a legal state is for the IRS 73201. Um, and you know that you and I are probably the only ones listening to this that actually know those code sections, right? You're right. Oh, very <laughs> much so. Very much so. You know, and it, it's frustrating for me and probably for you as well because you want to give them options, right? You mm-hmm. want to say, no, you can use an FSA, HRA, you know, to, to travel and get those expenses and kind of engage. But because there's that giant massive gray area, you've got to, you've got to be aware of it. Right, right. Well, I want to continue that thought because you just mentioned the travel benefits. And of course, one way that employers are thinking about allowing for abortions is through travel benefits. So let's talk more about that. Uh, as I mentioned, I had Marilyn Monahan on the podcast uh, just the last two weeks, in fact. And we talked about adding travel benefits or modifying mm-hmm. their existing travel benefits to accommodate abortions. What are your words of caution here? What do people need to be worried about? Yeah, so I apologize for sounding like a broken record, but one of the main things that we have seen, and I have talked to more lawyers and compliance people and had my ear to the ground than I probably care to admit. You and me both. (laughs) Yeah, the main overall message is, look, if you want to do it, more power to you. Um, 
just be aware that you do have this exposure here that that, that is concerned because they they haven't defined up what the state is right it's right kind of i don't mean to sound like a repeated pattern but that's really the glaring light if you do decide to want to do it everybody and their mother has basically said make sure you have a very astute legal counsel in case there is action but that's the other variable too right the other variable all this my friend is even though you may technically be aiding and abetting and breaking the law are they going to prosecute and we, right we don't we don't know Right. We right. just don't know. And that's the, the other variable. So what we have to say is uh, kind of what we should be saying. This is the complete picture here. You know, um, we can't provide you advice on guidance because at this stage, there's no real clear path. Right. Right. Stay, yeah. stay tuned. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, let's talk about what IRS Section 213 D does allow for. Are there allowances for travel expenses? Yep. And, and if so, what are those limits? Uh, so yeah. just fill us in. So let's say you want to kind of go on the side of what we've been seeing, employers that kind of follow north, north, kind of normal patterns. So what do I mean by that? So what are we seeing in the market? We're seeing the, the employer that tends to be more aggressive. They tend to be more risk takers. They're wanting to move forward. They're doing travel plans. And they, yes, you're exactly right. Section 213 does allow for it. Now, they allow for lodging and meals. You know, it can't be uh, – there's limitations. It can't be extravagant. We can't be going to the Four Seasons and things like that. We're not renting Bentleys to go to the next state over, right? <laughs> uh, and also, the individuals that are traveling, you can't have it a blend of medical and also personal. Hey, let's go to the Ozarks. And Ozarks a bad choice. But let's say go, let's go to Florida, and we're going to go down there, and then we're also going to go to Disneyland afterwards. Well, if you do that, then you're negating the ability to use Section 213. Um, to, to be able to do this. And then finally, something I think it's really important for us to talk about is the individuals and the, uh, the places or entities you go to have to be licensed. So you cannot have somebody just kind of pops up and says, look, I'll take care for it. I'll do it for you. Um, but I'm not licensed. Then you can't utilize Section 213 to kind of get reimbursed. You know, I do want to say I don't want to tell you exact limits because it's a lot like ERISA. It's moving fast. By the time this podcast comes out, it, the, the amount that it'll be allowed could change. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, could there be some mental health parity issues? Yes. Yes, there, there definitely could be on that. And so okay. yeah. that's something to be used to too. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the various ways to set up travel benefit plans because yep. um, I know you've, you've been involved with this. You have mm-hmm. options in an HSA, an FSA, an HRA, all these acronyms. Uh, can you tell us what, you know, what that means to you as an administrator? Yeah, so basically, and I'll also tell you where the administrative kind of realm is, is at right now. So you have a portion of the administrative realm that says, yep, we're going to do it, not a problem, we'll throw out a home harmless, we got you covered, have a nice day. You have another part of, of the administrative the realm that says, you know, we don't really know where this is going and if they're going to execute prosecution, so we're going to hold back a little bit. Um, but in regards to the function of it, it's very much kind of like you would have for any type of expense. You know, you're going to go... And you're going to pay for your lodging and your meals while you go there. And then you would go and you would submit it to the administrator for reimbursement, like kind of like a normal function. You would also have a plan document that would illustrate kind of the rules of the road of it. So, um, yeah, we've seen more inquiries from it on the FSA HRA side of it than we have the HSA. As of right now, I'm giving a little asterisk sign. You can't see me because things continue to change. Right, (laughs) right. So so it sounds like that's where where you're going with this, where you're seeing is mostly on the FSA and HRA side. Very much so. So, Those are the platforms they're most interested in. Right. So are employers in your, you know, just based on your experience, are they rushing to make decisions or just checking into it at this stage? Oh, it's been really interesting. It follows the exact patterns of how employers are. So what do I mean by that? <laughs> the, the employers that are your risk takers, they're the ones that push it. They're the ones that are kind of trying the newest and greatest. 
they are already looking to get plans going. They're going to put it in there. Um, you know what? If they don't like it, uh, kind of, I've got great legal counsel. Let's do this. Right? Yeah. They're kind of seeing the view that, that there's going to be a softer hand coming. My more conservative part of the market is saying, oh, it's just a little bit too far. And I would say if you had to ask me, it would probably be about 80% of the market is, oh, it's just a little bit too far. I just need a little bit more refined guidance. And I also need a little more time. So my, I'm going to watch my risks taking friends. And if they don't seem to get prosecuted over time, then maybe I think I'm going to start engaging in it. You see that there's a desire to help and support their employees. But because the concern of the sword of Democles, right, hanging over their head, they don't know if it's going to fall or not. Um, kind of, it's kind of having them hold off. Yeah, yeah. The main thing I want to illustrate to everybody is that, look, if you're going to move forward with it, and you can even say this if you want. Um, is just everybody's told me if you're going to move forward, you got to have strong legal counsel just to protect you in case they do decide to prosecute. But we don't know if they're going to. I mean, it's there's just no the winds aren't shifting either way. You know how normally you and I can figure out which way it's going to go. You kind of get that inkling, that gut sense. Um, this one is straight down the middle. We have no idea. Right, exactly. So what's your best advice for an employer right now who is thinking of setting up a travel plan uh, and, and yep. they want to, they want to consider at least th this whole abortion issue? I mean, what, what's yep. your best advice for that? Yeah, if you're going to do that, uh, my best advice to them is make sure you've got a pretty dialed in legal counsel that is um, doing the research and they're, they're working their network to get any kind of sense which way this is going to go. If you have any inkling of concern, uh, I would hold off and utilize time as your friend yes. to see where this is going to go. Because the number one thing everyone needs to remember in our in our realm, it starts fuzzy and it refines and refines and refines. So there will be a day you and I, Dorothy, are going to be having a coffee and we're going to say, yep, they refined it down and this is how it works and this is the rules of the road and off you go. Right. We're not there yet. Right. So what I'm going to do is, uh, because this is a very interesting topic, when this podcast does air, I'm going to include in the show notes a link to uh, the published article at that point. And there may be more than one, as because it, it looks like it's going to be published at least twice. Uh, and uh, so as that happens, I'll add to the show notes. So you can see the article uh, that we talked about, all of these things, in a lot more uh, detail. And, and, and Jeff, of course, as I said, helped me with that and participated in that article as well. So thanks again for that. Um, you bet. And everybody that's listening to this, they really need to keep astute to your stuff because <laughs> you're one of the best in the industry and staying ahead of what's going on. So, you know, we, we've talked about the main concern is the, the gray area. You're going to make it more black or white sooner than most. So they need to keep paying attention. To yeah, I do tend to do that. Thank you. For, thank you for that compliment. I appreciate you it. Bet. But uh, some people kind of tell me when they see me at conventions and so forth, they say, I love your articles, but sometimes they just go way over my head. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And others say, I love the detail. I love the detail. So, um, yeah, I am one of those detail-oriented people, and, and I do kind of dig in. I, I get right into the weeds, uh, and that's that's I try to make it thought-provoking. So thank you and for that. it's important, though. It's yeah, important thanks. important to have that. You well, need people to do that. Yeah, so thank you. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So thank you very much, my dear friend Jeff, for being with me. And, and you know, I really appreciate your time, your candor, you know, um, your humor, all those types of things. So thank you. Um, I want to yeah. I want to give everybody the opportunity to reach out to you if they'd like to. Uh, so sure. if anybody wants to reach out, to, you know, to you specifically, how can they do that? Yeah, there's two really easy ways. For, actually, three. You can hit me up on LinkedIn if you're a LinkedIn person. If you want to email me, just email me at jeff.strong at sterlinghsa, all one word, dot com. Or you can give me a call, 714 944 
3259. I spend a majority of my time talking on that phone about fun compliance things, and I'm always here to ask or answer any questions. And I and I and I'm sorry if your phone gets really really busy after this podcast. Yeah, I, would love that. I love people. <laughs> and I, I'm sure at this point they go, that guy likes to talk, so he probably has no problem taking calls. Absolutely, no and, and and you're right about that. He has no problem taking calls, and he does love to talk, probably as much if not more than me, which is good. <laughs> which is good. That's why we get along so well. Amen. <laughs> well, thanks again, Jeff, and to everybody else out there. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and come back and listen again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.